welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we delve into Scottish history, mythology and folklore. I'm Jenny, a crusty old spirit that once haunted the ancient highland village of Brigadoon and now inhabits the body of a very attractive and completely symmetrical environmental scientist. And I'm Annie, a... A dusty leather-bound Celtic book that was animated by a benign wizard into the form of an asymmetrical archivist. And that's us. Welcome. Pretty accurate. Welcome to Stories <laughs> of Scotland. <laughs> this is the start of a new season, where we'll be exploring all things clans, crofts and Kayleys, Focusing particularly on Highland culture, because that's Yay. where we are and that's what we know. Yes, it is. For our first episode in the series, we're going to take a look at the Battle of Culloden, a massive turning point for the Highlands and the clan way of life, and also just a very important battle from a European and worldwide perspective. Um, Culloden really does matter. The Battle of Culloden is world famous. It was the last pitched battle fought on British soil. So the last battle that had a predetermined time and place, like round the back of the school at 4.30, or out on this boggy field in the Highlands at 11am on the 16th of April 1746. And it's on this day, 275 years ago, that the course of Scottish history was drastically changed. Culloden Battlefield is situated in the northeast of Scotland. It's just down the road from where I am in Inverness, about five or six miles to the east, and it attracts a lot of tourism. Many people with clan connections make Culloden a pilgrimage to pay tribute to their ancestors, and there's always extra flowers at the Clan Fraser grave marker many of which are left by fans of the famous and popular time-travelling fiction Outlander. And it's not just Outlander. Culloden was even featured in an old episode of Doctor Who. But the BBC decided to wipe the videotapes after it broadcast because back then their main bias was against keeping their own archives in order. Simpler times indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but even outside of fiction... Culloden Battle is highly mythologised. Its significance is undeniable, but it's portrayed as a kind of last stand for clan and Highland culture. Now, personally, I don't really see Culloden this way, because the folks fighting in the battle didn't really know what would be done to the Highlands over the next few centuries, and how this would transform this place forever. And Culloden itself has got a complicated political and religious background that you really need to get into the detail of to really understand why the battle happens and the real meanings of it, because this is multi-layered. And then the battle itself just becomes a, a kind of brutal slaughter. But let's take this one piece at a time and go back to 1746. All right, I've got my bagpipes, a couple of claymores and the TARDIS. Rom, rom, rom. TARDIS noise or bagpipe noise? You decide, Annie. <laughs> Let's start with the Jacobite leader, Bonnie Prince Charlie, or as I like to call him, BPC. Who is this Bonnie Prince, and why does he end up taking a Jacobite army into battle at Culloden, Annie? Okay. So we're going into a deep well to understand 
why Bonnie Prince Charlie is fighting, we need to go all the way back to his grandfather, James II of England and Ireland, and James VII of Scotland. My grandpa just slips me fibres. He doesn't really set me up for full battle. Plus, he's only got one name. Mike. <laughs> well, instead of slipping him a fiver, James Second and Seventh lost the family fortune, Aww. which was the crown of the British Isles. Aww. Now, James Second and Seventh was of the Stuart family, which started off as a house of Scotland, but became a house of Great Britain. However, James Second and Seventh was disposed as king because of his Catholic faith. Also, he was close with other Catholic leaders in Europe, such as France, and he pushed hard for the Declaration of Indulgence. Ooh, I know all about the Declaration of Indulgence. It happens about 9.30 each night when season three of The Crown is on and the Cadbury's and Prosecco are cracked open. I think perhaps your Declaration of Indulgence is a little bit different to this 17th century Declaration of Indulgence. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. See, the Declaration of Indulgence was first proposed by James II's father, Charles II, and it was to give religious liberty to Protestant nonconformists and Roman Catholics. Now, Charles II was Protestant, and he didn't succeed in getting the Declaration of Indulgence passed. And after his death, James II and VII swoops in to try and get some basic religious liberty rights. However, when Parliament doesn't support James II and VII, he tries to overthrow Parliament and create one that will have his back and support his indulgence. But of course, the anti-Catholic lords, nobles, aristocracy aren't that concerned about Catholic James II and VII because he's only a short-term problem for them. You see, his daughter Mary is the first heir to the throne. And she's a Protestant, so she solves their problems. These anti-Catholic lords just need to politely wait for James II and VII to die. And huh. then when the crown passes over to Mary, they have a Protestant monarch. Okay. And they think that this will happen because James II and VII had been married to his second wife, Italian Roman Catholic Mary of Modena, for over a decade without any pitter-patter of tiny feet. They mm. hadn't had any children of their own, so there was no heir to challenge Mary. That is until 1688, when Mary of Modena gives birth to their son, James Francis Edward Stuart, who, because he's a boy, overtakes his half-sister as heir to the throne. And now it looks like the next heir to the throne could be a Catholic. And so, the English nobles take their turn to overthrow James II and VII and replace him with his daughter Mary and her husband, William of Orange. This is known as the Glorious Revolution. Glorious, because there was no bloodshed. That is, unless you count all of the blood that was shed in the Scottish and Irish revolts because of this famously bloodless revolution. James II and VII, Mary of Modena and baby James took exile to France to stay with James's cousin, King Louis XIV. And in this wee baby, who will one day later be known to some as Prince or others the old pretender, is the beginning of the Jacobites. This is the origin story. The name Jacobite comes from the Latin for James. 
the lost king and baby across the seas, the rightful heirs to the British throne in exile from their homeland. Baby James Edward Francis Stuart grows up and decides to reclaim the throne for the Stuarts. This is the Jacobite Rising of 1715 and 1719 and it failed and so Mm. the dwindling house of Stuart is banished from France and eventually settled in Rome. That's just adding insult to injury, losing your Jacobite Rising and your lovely French lodgings. Yes, and they didn't forget this. And the cause is passed on to the next generation of exiles. And James Francis Edward Stuart's son takes up the mantle. And his son is, of course, Charles Edward Louis John Casimir Sylvester Severino Maria Stuart. Well, with a name like that, I can see why he decided to rebrand into Bonnie Prince Charlie. And even that's too long. BPC for the win! Well, not... Not the important win later on. He doesn't win that. (laughs) He was also known by the young prince or the young pretender, depending on which side of the dispute you belong. And Bonnie Prince Charles ignited the Jacobite Rising of 1745, which will end with the Battle of Claudon. So we buzz quite quickly through the Bonnie Prince Charlie origin story, but it is important, isn't it? Because when I think of the Jacobites, I think of Gaelic-speaking, plaid-clad folks and claymore-carrying men. But the politics of kings and queens doesn't mention any of this kind of Gale or Highlander. Bonnie Prince Charlie, despite coming from Scottish royalty, he's pretty detached from all of this, isn't he? I agree with you. What we have here is an exiled prince with a crown to win. If he becomes king of the British Isles, then he'll be one of the most powerful monarchs in Europe. And then for his army, we're going to be having a few different communities of people who will be risking everything that they have to fight for his cause. We have Highland and Island Gaels, the Gaelic-speaking communities of the rural north and west of Scotland. We also have Lowland Scots, Irish and French soldiers. Our Jacobite army at Culloden isn't any kind of homogenous group. There's multiple different reasons why folks are fighting. But even still, the majority of BPC's Jacobite army is made up of the Highland clans who still support the Stuart family's claim to the throne, the Gales. Yes, you're right, in everything but calling Bonnie Prince Charlie BPC. (laughs) But it's not straightforward. The way that our clans are set up means that we have a chief who is recognised by Scots law. And the members of the clan are seen as a, a kind of kinship or community. Many of the clan members are related to the chief, but many more people would be joining the clan because of geography or power or a mixture of these things. The clans have their own kind of feudal system of land management. So you still have tenants and subtenants and so on. So if I'm a 17th century member of Clan McBigCoo, it might just be because I ended up renting a sunny wee west coast black house to grow my barley and keep my cow, Ranald. Yes, Jenny, you're now part of the Clan McBigCoo. But also, you're under... Sorry, moo! Also, you would now be under the protection of the chief of Clan McBigCoo. 
But unfortunately, this means, Jenny, if you are a man, then you can be compelled to fight for your clan. Goodbye, sweet Ranald, and farewell, for I must raise my claymore and defend the honour of my clan and my McBig coup. <laughs> but even more so, the recent union with England has left Scotland economically devastated. Because England had cut off trading with France, who had been a key partner for Scotland. Folks were poorer than they had been, and the poverty has led to desperation. But it's important to remember that not every Jacobite fought out of their own choice. One particularly bad case is that of Lady Lude. Ah, Lady Lude. Now, she was the daughter of Lady Nairn, and both were staunch Jacobites and supporters of BPC. But not all of the tenants on their land were as keen to support the cause, especially if it meant marching off into battle all over the British Isles, not knowing if or when you'll even come back. But Lady Lud did not care for the opinions of her tenants and demanded that if they do not fight for the Jacobites, she will burn down their crofts. And for better or worse, Lady Lud was a lady of her words. So mainly for the worst then, Jenny. In the case of the tenants, yes. If they refused to fight, their crofts and thus their livelihoods were reduced to ashes. And while Lady Lud is an extreme case, many of the men who fought for the Jacobites were fighting either out of loyalty to their own chiefs or because their chief demanded it of them. And so our mishmash Jacobite army is formed, each man fighting for Bonnie Prince Charlie and each also with his own reason for being behind Bonnie Prince Charlie, whether it's his own poverty or being compelled by his clan or by his religion or because he genuinely believes that the Stuarts are the right heirs to the throne. All right, let's go. Or charge. Uh, ah. Woo. <laughs> so let's briefly look at the other army at Culloden the Hanoverian Army of the British Government. The British Government Army is led by the youngest son of King George II, Prince William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland. The British Army were well known for their red uniforms and were thus called redcoats in a derogatory manner. Now Cumberland is leading a very well-prepared army and they are wary of the Jacobites. This isn't a done deal until the battle is over. Cumberland has good reason for being well prepared. The 1745 Jacobite Rising had started with good success, under the command of both Bonnie Prince Charlie and one of the leaders in his army, Lord George Murray, though the two didn't always see eye to eye. Lord George Murray was an experienced military leader. He had been a soldier in the Jacobite Risings earlier in the 1700s for Bonnie Prince Charlie's dad and he was central to the winds of the 1745 rebellion. However, some of the Jacobite success had been because the majority of the British army had been abroad, fighting in mainland Europe. So Bonnie Prince Charlie and Murray managed to march the Jacobites all the way down south to Derby, before hesitating. 
Now, this hesitation is because Bonnie Prince Charlie expected English Jacobites to rejoice at his return to his homeland and to join his cause as his army marched south. But this didn't quite work as he expected it to. Ah, they should have had the volovants. I can't miss a party if I know there's going to be half-decent nibbles there, let alone an army. Hit me with that eclair. (laughs) So he didn't get that much support from passing through England. But also, Charlie had reassured Murray that French ships would bring troops to simultaneously attack southern England. Ah, the French were bringing the decent nibbles. I see what they're doing here. But they heard no news of the French invasion or the French nibbles. Ah, is this because the French just didn't invade? Aye. So Charlie and Mm. Murray got cold feet and turned the Jacobite army around again. Strategically, this was caring for the lives of their men, but it would have been more exciting if they had just gone to London. And did they not have quite a good chance as well? Because most of the British army was overseas, had they proceeded, you know, they could have been in with a good shot. Historians come down on either side. I think it would have been a fascinating alternative history if the Jacobites had been brave enough to just march on London. Um... Uh, The reports from London at the time were absolutely terrified. If you think the majority of people have never seen Highland folks in the flesh, they've only heard the stories about them, and by all accounts, they know them as a rebellious folk who are famous for their Highland charge and who they do perceive um, as quite barbaric. They're scared. They are scared. And instead, they performed the classic tactic of yoldy half-invasion. I don't know. I think they should have just continued to London and demanded the crown jewels and seized all of London's nibbles. (laughs) But instead, this gives the British government time to bring reinforcements back from abroad. Now, the Duke of Cumberland and a large army has already been recalled. So the British government now has a large army to go against these poor Jacobites who have just done a really, really long distance hike and a fair deal of fighting, sieging and generally exhausting activities. Yes, so the Jacobite army is absolutely knackered and folks are deserting left, right and centre. They've gone from being a very high morale, invading, attacking force with a few wins under their belts to being a depleted retreating force, going back to the safety of the north of Scotland. But Cumberland intends to stamp out any chance of them regaining strength, and so follows them north. Okay, so now we have Cumberland and his army, which is made up of English soldiers as well as a few Irish and Scots who are loyal to the crown. So Cumberland's army make camp just west of Nairn, which is a town about 15 miles east of Inverness. The Jacobites had moved on the 15th of April from Inverness to Culloden. So our armies are settling down about 10 miles apart from one another. And the night of the 15th of April, 1746, is drawing in. Here we go, Annie. Hold on to your bonnet. The battle is coming. I think I might not want to be in Clan McBigku anymore, Jenny.
Annie, Annie, wake up. Wake up, Annie. Slap, slap. <laughs> wake up. <laughs> Bucket of water. Get out of bed. <laughs> but Jenny, I would really like to get my beauty sleep in before the Battle of Culloden. It's a very big day. I totally get that, Annie. We all want to look pretty when we get shot. But it's the Duke's 25th birthday. He's camped by Nairn and he's celebrating with brandy. It's a right old party. This is our chance. Are, are we invited to his party? Can I visit my gran whilst we're in Nairn? First off, bring your gran and grandpa. I think we could use the numbers, right? <laughs> but at Lord Murray's suggestion, BPC has invited the whole Jacobite army for a sneaky little nighttime ambush. That's right. The Jacobites are going to march stealthily by night and surprise the Duke of Cumberland's army whilst he's blowing out his candles on his birthday cake. Okay, Jenny, but surely we, the Jacobite army, are not going to march on the main road from Culloden to Nairn, because then we'll be seen and the surprise ambush will be ruined. Well, yeah, yeah of course not. The tactics in that. Instead, we, the Jacobite army, are going cross-country. We don't really know the back path very well, or actually, um, at all, but we're gonna give it a go. What could possibly go wrong? Also, it's really dark and boggy, and I'm cold and tired. Okay then, Jenny, if you insist, let's go to the Duke of Cumberland's birthday party. Woo! But this walk is taking a little bit longer than I imagined. And I don't think mm. we're anywhere near Nairn. Hmm. And it kind of looks like nothing is happening and mm. and the sun looks like it's rising a little bit and mm. now we're turning round to head back to Culloden I'm not good Jenny I think I might just take a little nap don't be silly Annie where are you gonna nap we're in a field yes but look at this lovely ditch I found in this field <laughs> you can't sleep in a ditch what if there's slugs or something <laughs> I mean <laughs> We could die at the battle, Jenny, so I, I just want to have a little rest first. Oh, this is ridiculous, but also painfully historically accurate. The Jacobite army planned and half-executed a nighttime ambush. The only problem is that they didn't make it to Nairn, they didn't attack, and they didn't inform all of the army when they retreated. And so this fractured, exhausted and hungry army, full of soldiers just like you, Annie, fell asleep all over the Highland countryside. Some wandered back and others just, you know, curled up in a happy little Highland ball in a ditch to try and get some shut-eye before the battle in the morning, which is 25 minutes away. You will likely wake up with some slugs in your hair, Annie, and possibly a bayonet in your chest. My nap is not worth slugs in my hair nor a bayonet in my chest, Jenny. And yet, still you lay there. <laughs> Considering I knew what happened next, I think that having my nap was really not the cleverest decision I've ever made. Well, some of them totally slept through and just wandered back to Inverness the next day after the battle. But yes, the Jacobite nighttime ambush was a massive failure and just served to exhaust and in some cases lose troops. The sun rises on the 16th April, 1646, and Cumberland's army are awake, well-slept, well-fed, and marched towards Culloden. The Jacobites watched the government troops arrive over the horizon for the battle in the morning, 
by midday the lines were clearly formed. Culloden Moor isn't an ideal battleground for the Jacobites. They were hopeful that the government army wouldn't be able to carry their cannons into the boggy ground, but the government army is prepared enough to be able to set up their weapons. And every other aspect of Dramossi, the marshy wet moor of Culloden, is a massive disadvantage to the Jacobite army. The clan soldiers are famous for their highland charge, a battlefield shock tactic to rush the enemy, terrifying them with their weapons raised and their voices bellowing. But this ground is not made for this kind of attack. It's going to really hold them back. The Jacobites are also outnumbered by the government army. The Jacobites have 7,000 men, the government have 8,000. Also, the Jacobite army are knackered and on a ration of just three biscuits a day, though some of them may not have even had that. For me, this is a really heartbreaking aspect of the whole battle, that there are folks who are just fighting in the hopes that Bonnie Prince Charlie will ease their suffering and poverty. And now they are starved and standing on very poor ground, but still ready to fight to make their lives and their families' lives a tiny bit happier. The battle began with artillery fire. The government had significantly more than the Jacobites, though at long range it did have limited impact. However, it would strike fear into the souls of men to see cannon fire falling from the sky up onto the moor that they are about to run onto. It must have been terrifying. And unsurprisingly, the Highland Charge did not go to plan at all. From upon his horse, Bonnie Prince Charlie gave the orders for the Jacobites to charge. It turns into chaos on the moor, because the ground is so challenging to advance over. The five different regiments, which are all meant to be hitting the government army at different points, end up swerving together and clustering. This gives them a huge disadvantage, as they are now meeting the government army at one point. Many of them would be killed by the musket fire from the government army during this time. And then the armies clash. Now the British government had a trick up their sleeve to use at Culloden. They had a new bayonet drill. The bayonet is the knife at the end of the musket, and the British army troops were issued with them. And their new strategy was designed to specifically use the bayonets against the Highland Charge. The new bayonet drill was a simple instruction. Instead of thrusting your knife at the end of your musket at the enemy in front of you, as is human nature to do so to protect yourself, now all of the British government soldiers were trained to aim for the enemy to their right, the Jacobite attacking their fellow soldier. This means that just as the Jacobite soldier has their heavy sword or weapon raised, the bayonet would slice into them from their exposed side. When the Highland Charge met the muskets and the bayonets, it decided the battle. In the midst of the blood and smoke, feet wet from boggy ground, the battle was lost for the Jacobites. The new bayonet tactic was massively effective, and if you combine this with the lack of Jacobite organisation, the writing was on the wall. Some in the Jacobite forces fought to their deaths, some retreated and fled. Bonnie Prince Charlie himself retreated and he escaped, abandoning the troops he had led to battle.
Culloden Battlefield is down a winding country road, where the locals drive too fast and the tourists drive too slow. There is an emotive visitor's centre built next to the site of the battle, and built into the structure itself is the Wall of the Dead, which runs along an outside wall. It's made of a kind of dark grey mudstone, with some of these stones set back in the wall and others sticking out. Each stone sticking out represents the life of a fallen soldier. There's a break in the wall, so you can see how many men died on each side. You can walk past the British government dead in a few paces. However, it's a much longer walk for the Jacobites who fell. It's an incredibly powerful design. How many men died, Annie? About 50 from the British government and about a thousand and a half for the Jacobites. But whilst writing this episode, I thought a lot about how the Battle of Claudin is so much more than the battle itself. So much of it is about what happens after Claudin, when the British government decimated the structures of Highland culture and society. But there's still so much to discuss about the immediate aftermath of losing the battle that we've decided to focus on this in the next episode in some detail, looking at Bonnie Prince Charlie after Culloden. And along with the next episode, we've got a really exciting season planned for you all. So if you're enjoying the podcast, then why not share it with someone you love or leave us a review on whichever platform you listen on. It really helps others to find us if the podcast gets lots of engagement from our lovely listeners. We love making this podcast and we put a lot of time and care into each episode. If you would like to support us as we research, write, record, edit and release this podcast, then you can join our little Patreon family by going to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland. We have lots of new members since our last regular episode, so a big hearty pre culloden Highland welcome to Daphne, Kathy, Rona H, Gregory G, Lisa, Mikey boy, but not my granddad. <laughs> thank you, Mike, genuinely. <laughs> Caitlin M, thank you. Mark, Kelly and Bruce, Catherine and Shauna, Michael W, Anna A, Kimmy H, Elizabeth D, LL Jack, Katie B, Alex M. And Rachel L. Thank you all so, so much. It's it's actually really strange to have so many people to read out. It's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> I just It's really wonderful. I, I think it's so kind and generous of, of so many people to choose to support us and we really, really appreciate it and value it. Thank you so much. But there's lots of other ways you can support us as well. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Engaging with our social media is a great way to help other people to find our podcast, and we really appreciate that. Tell your granny about us, tell Jenny's grandfather about us, and join us again for the next episode on the aftermath of Culloden Slangeva. Slangeva.